morning and welcome to Rising. It's Monday, which means we have Bacha Angar Sargon back with us in spirit at least. Great to see you, Bacha. <laughs> Thanks, Robbie. So what's going on in the news? Over the weekend, Biden tested positive for COVID again. The president's physician said that he will return to strict isolation procedures following the diagnosis. The doctor's letter reads, quote, as described last week, acknowledging the potential for so-called rebound positivity observed in a small percentage of patients treated with Paxlovid, the president increased his testing cadence both to protect people around him and to assure early detection of any return of viral replication. This isn't actually the first time we've seen a high-profile Paxlovid rebound. Dr. Fauci himself had a similar experience when he was diagnosed with COVID. Last Thursday, Biden met with CEOs and cabinet members at the White House, including Brian Deese, Secretary Janet Yellen, Marriott CEO, and more. According to White House reporter Philip Wegman, Biden actually shook hands with several participants before then sitting down and removing his mask for opening remarks. So I find this whole Paxlovid uh, rebound concept pretty fascinating and also like undeniable at this point. And you can't, you cannot tell me that it's just a small number of cases of people experiencing this. If both Biden and <laughs> Fauci, I mean, what, what would be the odds that the two most prominent COVID response people in our government, <laughs> period, those are, those are the two, the president and Fauci, they both had Paxlovid repound. So you don't tell me this is something that only like 1% of people experience or something. It has to be extremely common, right? Right. When I saw the number, I think I saw a number for, you know, that there's 5% rebound. I'm like, <laughs> I had the same exact reaction to you. Like, that would be such amazing odds, that, you know, like, the, you know, 5% right. chance and, and the two most high profile people get it. I totally agree with you. I do think that there's this really interesting juxtaposition between Biden's health on the one hand and the COVID, you know, the returning. And on the other hand, this like amazing week that he had that sort of came out of nowhere, right, where he had all of these big legislative victories. Injuries, right, <laughs> the Chips Act, and um, you know, getting his some version of Build Back Better right. finally, you know, potentially on the road somewhere. And meanwhile, he's battling COVID. It's like the time that he was the most physically impaired. Suddenly, all of this stuff, like legislatively, just broke through. It was such an interesting juxtaposition. That's a good point. I hadn't quite thought of that. It, right? It's not as if I mean, you, you don't really think that he's like gumming up the works or something or getting in the way, I don't think, of legislation. He's just not really doing anything effectively for it. So him being kind of taken out of, and I, you know, I don't know how, it sounds like he was not particularly ill. He, he was still making phone calls, just kind of isolating and, you know, doing whatever he's doing um, uh, normally. But it is, you're right, it is a very interesting juxtaposition. I think it calls into question this, uh, this, this treatment a, a little bit. And now, like, my reading of the science for it is that, you know, it's very, if you're unvaccinated, um, taking Paxlovid, and, and also particularly if you're in an at-risk category, uh, will actually does, and according to the testing, really reduce your risk of hospitalization, which is great. But I, I, they don't really have that. I mean, I guess your risk of hospitalization if you're vaccinated and you're not in an at-risk category is, is pretty low. So then trying to demonstrate the you know, the extra efficacy of this uh, of this uh, uh, pharmaceutical. I was talking to someone, um, a, a colleague of mine at my other organization, Reason, um, who, who was saying that he thinks maybe starting Paxlovid too early can be the issue uh, because then you're, if your body needs time to develop antibodies 
um, to COVID. So if Paxlovid stops that from happening even in the first place, then as soon as your course of it is done, then you go through that process anyway. So taking so there might be some window of time where you actually take it too early, and it's a it's a bad idea. But um, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, that was uh, <laughs> in the New York Times piece as well. They argued that because it's so effective, your body doesn't quite realize that it has COVID, and so it doesn't develop the same level of antibodies, and then you go, you know, you get in that rebound zone. Mm. That's fascinating. Well, I think it does, you know, suggest that we really have to get uh, mentally, if nothing else, in the you know post kind of COVID, post pandemic uh, frame of mind. Look, I, every, every, it's inevitable. You're probably everyone's going to get it eventually, sooner or later. Very contagious. You know, not we're not. The, the kinds of restrictions that we've done in the past, we don't even know if they're how much they're helping. Maybe they help a little bit. They're certainly not, you know, slowing the spread of the variants that break out. Regardless, but you know, we don't have uh, substantially. We do not have like out of control hospitalizations or deaths. You know, everyone who wants to get vaccinated has gotten vaccinated, can get boosted if they want. So we really do have to move past, I think, this like emergency COVID footing. And, you know, the president, a a very, very old president, oldest president of the United States, I believe, um, someone whose health is often discussed uh, as, you know, we don't really know necessarily. Obviously, it seems physically he's in fine shape. I think that obviously there's questions about kind of his mental fitness, that sort of thing. And they are just questions. We don't have any confirmation about it. But anyway, someone, that kind of person, you know, having a very totally fine, not worrisome experience with COVID, like, okay, great. That's how it is. Let's move on. Yeah, it's reminding me a lot of when President Trump got COVID and (laughs) he was so triumphalist about it, right? Like, I'm fine, you know, it was terrible. Now I'm great. And, um, you know, I I agree with you. There's something about the spectacle of somebody who we think of as, you know, weak and old um, having such a triumphant recovery. And, you know, if yeah, he's in the rebound now, but, you know, God willing, he'll come out of this as well, you know, just like he did last week and managed to accomplish even more. So I agree with you. There's something about that that really Really, you, it makes you feel very optimistic about where we're at in terms of the pandemic. And um, I think also, um, you know, the, the 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 thing that will keep coming up for Democrats, I think, is, you know, so he got these negative tests. He went out there, he shook hands, he took his mask off. Right. Um, and then turned out that he was in this rebound period. And I think that, you know, the fact that the Democrats represented the kind of COVID zero, the American version of COVID zero mm-hmm. for so long is always going to open them up to accusations of hypocrisy when they don't uphold that standard and certainly knowing about the Paxlovid rebound maybe he he was premature in I guess acting like one of us who never took it you know seriously in the same way or demanded that others do so right yeah I think that's an excellent point it's just uh well what some of the right the the COVID zero type Democrats have advocated for so long. And I mean, it is a, it's an impossible standard to live up to past a certain point because you just you want to take off your mask. You want to see people you I mean, now it's kind of crazy to think about now as a year later. But a year ago, you know, that we were still in, in very serious corners of you know American civilization. People were talking about how, oh, yeah, it's 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 not OK yet to have like a birthday party picnic or something this summer. Remember that? That was last summer. Now we are substantially past it. Thank goodness. Although, you know, we're still still there are restrictions on like the least at risk in schools at some schools, some university campuses, that kind of thing. 
But uh, so we have we have actually we should celebrate how far we've come, I think, since last summer. Um, thank goodness it's not you know, every second of every day is not consumed by, you know, trying to appease like total shutdown maniacs who are running um, our government and, you know, the commanding kind of opinion heights of society. But uh, that, you know, but Biden's- I, I do I just want to point out something I think is very important, which is that. We are not at this place relative to where we were then because of anything the administration did, anything the Democrats wanted. We are there because of the wisdom of the American people that said we're over this, like it's time to, you yep. know, it's endemic and we're that's how we're going to live. And they, they started to buck um, the, the, the regulations that were being enforced on them by Democratic authorities. And so I, I think it's very important that we give credit where credit is due. And it's with the wisdom of the American people that we're sort of had enough of this, a real rebuke of the quote unquote expert class. Yes, the people said no. And I think yes. some Democrats <laughs> started getting that right that last, you know, January, February-ish after, you know, seeing some things like like the Virginia gubernatorial race, the um, the, the near loss in, in uh, where were New Jersey, I think, uh, other places going like, ah, if we cling to this, it will be a, a political loser. Um, but uh, so I, I think that did make a difference, just as you said. All right, we'll tell you what's on our radars coming up next. And we think we might have dueling radars. We were looking at what we yes, were talking we about. I, we might be talking about the same thing from different perspectives. So stay I'm tuned excited. for that. <laughs> what is on your radar, Robbie? Well, Meta's third-party fact-checkers have flagged as false information posts on Instagram and Facebook that accused the Biden administration of changing the definition of a recession in order to deny that the U.S. economy has entered one. This is yet another reminder that the project of purportedly independent fact-checking on social media is a highly partisan one in which legitimately debatable opinions are passed off as objective truth. Last week, the White House published an online article disputing the standard definition of an economic recession, i.e. two consecutive fiscal quarters in which GDP growth was negative. Quote, both official determinations of recessions and economists' assessment of economic activity are based on a holistic look at the data, including the labor market, consumer and business spending, industrial production, and incomes, wrote the White House. Based on these data, it is unlikely that the decline in GDP in the first quarter of this year, even if followed by another GDP decline in the second quarter, indicates a recession, end quote. So this post has been widely shared and in some cases mocked on social media. Graham Allen, an Instagram personality, posted a video reacting to the post in which he asked Siri to define the term recession. Siri's definition? Two consecutive quarters of negative economic growth. Let's watch. White House is now trying to protect Joe Biden by changing the definition of the word recession, stating, while some maintain two consecutive quarters of falling real GDP constitute a recession, that is neither the official definition nor the way economists evaluate the state of business. So I decided to ask Siri, what is the definition of a recession? Period of temporary economic decline during which trade and industrial activity are reduced, generally identified by a fall in GDP in two successive quarters. Do you want to hear the remaining one? Pow. Oh! 
But that video got a partially misleading fact check. Uh, the image of it was obscured for a while when I tried to check it on Friday. You had to click through it first. Now, users can still watch it, but yeah, they had to click past that disclaimer. Said it contained false information reviewed by independent fact checkers. A similar label has appeared on some Facebook posts that also take issue with the Biden administration's wordplay. The fact checker is PolitiFact, which is a fact-checking website run by the Pointer Institute. PolitiFact is an official third-party fact-checking apparatus for Meta, the company that owns Facebook and Instagram. This means that PolitiFact is not like any ordinary website that offers a critique of a political narrative. PolitiFact's critiques are enforced by social media platforms. In this instance, PolitiFact has rated as false the claim that, quote, the White House is now trying to protect Joe Biden by changing the definition of the word recession. PolitiFact acknowledges that the Biden administration's efforts to spin current economic conditions as something other than a recession are political in nature. Nevertheless, the fact checkers conclude that since the White House is citing the National Bureau of Economic Research's official definition, the administration is on solid footing. Well, Phil Magnus, director of research and education at the American Institute for Economic Research, thinks PolitiFact is playing games. He told me in an interview that in this case, PolitiFact's ruling is compounded by the fact that they have previously invoked the very same definition of a recession, two consecutive quarters of decline in GDP, in previous rulings to either provide cover to exaggerated Democratic claims about impending recession or tear down Republican claims to the same effect. Now, in a recent op-ed for the Wall Street Journal, Magnus explained that the NBER is not the, quote, official arbiter of recessions, and actually, on the contrary, the federal government has often used the general definition preferred by most laypeople, as well as by Siri. Quote, I'm this quoting for them, Wall Street Journal op-ed. Mr. Biden's economic advisor is certainly free to make the case for a revised determination. The NBER takes a more holistic approach, in part because some recessionary events are shorter than two quarters or manifest in non-consecutive quarters. But the rationale works against the White House's current argument, which seeks to delay acknowledging a recession, even if a two-quarter decline is observed this year. The NBER committee has previously acknowledged recessions that fell short of a strict and sustained two-quarter contraction. This last happened during the 2000.com bust, which played out in non-consecutive quarterly drops. While recognizing its limitations, the traditional definition of a recession provides a functional rule of thumb to interpret events as they unfold. The NBER determination is a rigorous and reputable historical indicator for dating the beginning and end of business cycle troughs, but it isn't suitable for real-time policy determinations." End quote. So this is hardly the first time, hardly the first time, that social media fact-checkers in the industry have failed to add clarity to a contentious issue. Last year, PolitiFact rated as false the claim that COVID-19 is 99% survivable for most age groups. Quote, experts say a person cannot determine their own chances at surviving COVID-19 by looking at national statistics because the data doesn't take into account the person's own risk and COVID-19 deaths are believed to be undercounted, wrote PolitiFact. So regardless of what experts say, it is certainly the case that individual persons can estimate their likelihood of surviving COVID-19 based on national statistics. The disease's age discrimination is extreme. The overwhelming majority of young, healthy people are not at significant risk, especially when compared with elderly Americans. This was a curious fact check, and it was hardly the first. 
Science Feedback, which is another one of Meta's fact-checking partners, wrongly labeled as false one of my articles about the efficacy of mask mandates in schools. Not only was the fact check incorrect, it also introduced a new error. The fact checker suggested that my article had erroneously claimed that masks don't work to stop the spread of COVID in schools at all. In actuality, my, our, my article had only asserted that there wasn't much compelling evidence that mask mandates, not masks, but mask requirements, had made a difference. Now, a year later, this distinction is completely moot, since even COVID-cautious public health officials now admit the cloth masks required in most schools do practically nothing to thwart the variants. After I pointed out the mistake to Facebook, Science Feedback did remove the false information label in my case. But these are concerning mistakes. Media organizations routinely get things wrong. But the premise of fact-checkers was supposed to be there somehow above the fray, only weighing in when something can be proven or disproven quite definitively. Instead, they're often making dubious judgment calls on issues where reasonable disagreements exist. The fact-checking industry has become a partisan arbiter of political disputes using claims of expertise that its writers do not actually possess to censor and shut down challenges to the political left, Magnus told me, and I agree with him. So this is another screw-up, in my view, for the fact-checking, third-party Facebook fact-checking organizations, which are very curious, and I think people don't quite understand. So it's not Facebook itself doing these things. Facebook has third-party organizations that it has contracted with to do fact-checking. And there are some conservative groups involved in it. It is not just um, liberals, but the ones I have tangled with are these thinly veiled progressive advocacy groups on climate, on COVID, on other issues, which, you know, put their thumbs on the scale, weigh in and say, oh, this is false. You know, if you're disagreeing with this, or if you're saying this, this is false. And then it is often more complicated where there is reasonable experts disagreeing on both sides of a climate issue or a COVID issue. And they're doing it in this very careless and thoughtless way. So in my case, I was able to get them to, to you know, rescind that false information label. But to be clear, I, you know, I, I'm, a, I'm a media figure. I, have, I know people at Facebook. I, I could contact them and, 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 say, and call them out. Um, I have a higher degree of access to them than the average person does. If you get fact check, if you have that, you know, that video that I thought was pretty hilarious about the recession, you know, what is that guy's recourse? So it's, it's, worth, it's always worth calling out in my view. I could not agree with you more. And what makes this even more appalling is that it's always that same crew of like left wing activists who want to be able to censor as false things they don't agree with, who then go on to like lament that we no longer have a shared understanding of facts, right? It's always those people, mm -hmm. you know, in the mainstream left-wing media who are out there being like, why does nobody trust anything we say? You know, how, you know, we have two sets of facts now, alternative facts. It's like, yeah, because you do things like this. You clearly take something that is a value judgment and you act like it is a truth versus false judgment and it's not and that makes people not trust you because you're literally lying to them to promote your own political side so i totally agree i'm so glad that you brought this to my i hadn't didn't know about this the idea that i actually have as you will hear in my radar i actually agree with the white house about the recession and still the idea that you would label somebody saying that they're redefining it as misinformation or fact check it as false is absolutely right. it's just appalling right it's just it's the 
additional kind of presumption that, no, what we're doing is fact-checking. What you're doing yes. is having opinions, and what I'm doing is fact-checking. Well, no, you're just giving your opinion, and then we can let people decide whose opinion they agree with. But they, they frame it in this, it, it's this framing of, no, we are just telling you what the facts are. You know that old line from uh, what's the famous Democratic congressman, um, uh, you probably know who I'm talking about. Uh, uh, you know, you're entitled to your own opinions, but not your own facts. Well, don't, there's no difference between the two things right now. We're all making value judgments, giving you what we think based on the facts we have. And there is just as much disagreement on underlying factual issues than there is on, on opinions. You know, there, there are very smart brilliant people who disagree on as basic of questions as how bad the effects of climate change will be. Does minimum wage reduce uh, employment? You know, there, there are experts on both sides who, who can point, who can marshal tons of data to support their conclusions. So you can't just say, you can't just say, well, this is the factual determination. We've had that made. You know, have at it for your opinion. And, and it's, it, just doesn't, it just doesn't work like that way. And the fact checkers have seemed to me, or the people that call themselves fact checkers, do not have an appreciably better track record, as far as I can tell, for having judgments that are, that are better than just you know, a, a normal, I, whatever we are, as a pundits, journalists, reporters, commentators. It's the same thing. We're all engaged in the same work. Don't you know, make yourself sound more special than any of the rest of us. And I think it comes down to this idea that's taken root on the left that you know, they just don't actually believe in debate, like they don't believe that a healthy democracy should be able to sustain a debate about whether women should be able to have an abortion or not, right? Mm -hmm. They want to, by fiat, have their way enforced on everybody else. And so anything that they disagree with, they're gonna fact check that and label it as false rather than just, oh, this is somebody else's opinion. Mm. Daniel Patrick Moynihan, that's the famous democratic political figure I was trying to come up with, I just, just Googled it. Well, I can't wait to find out what's on your radar, Bacha. <laughs> Stay tuned, everybody. Bacha, what's on your radar? Well, as you mentioned in your radar, Robbie, much of last week was taken up with a rather tedious argument of definition. After Thursday's GDP report revealed that economic growth fell for the second quarter in a row by 0.9%, many pointed out that this meets the technical definition of a recession, a fall in GDP in two consecutive quarters. The White House pushed back, pointing to the strong labor market as evidence that we shouldn't view this as a recession, but rather as, quote, transitioning from a, from a historically strong recovery into a period of more stable and steady growth. Now, critics accuse the White House of gaslighting, something that they do often and with abandon. But in this case, I think the Biden administration has a point, at least according to the five economists I spoke to last week. Um, the White House is right that the labor market is strong. There are 11 million unfilled jobs and the economy has been adding about 400,000 jobs a month. Spend five minutes walking around your neighborhood talking to local business owners, and you'll learn that everyone is struggling to find workers. It seems extremely unlikely that this recession will lead to major layoffs, at least in the near term. The opposite, U.S. labor costs increased in the second quarter, boosting higher wages. Construction saw 4% year-over-year growth. Manufacturing saw 5.1% year-over-year growth and has a 6.7% vacancy rate. Leisure and hospitality saw 7.8% year-over-year growth. If it weren't for inflation, these numbers would represent the first real wage growth labor has seen in 40 years. Instead, inflation is driving down real wages and devastating American families. 
When inflation is 9.1%, you're bringing home less money even with an 8% raise. There's a kind of awful irony to people finally seeing a wage increase after 40 years only to have it get eaten up at the gas pump and the grocery store. But calling this a recession isn't going to put money in those families' bank accounts. All it does is flatten this moment of a lot of important context. Rana Faruhar, a business columnist and associate editor at the Financial Times, pointed out that pre-pandemic, the U.S. had been in the longest expansionary period we've had since 1845, which is basically when they started keeping records of this kind of thing. The reason for this long period of growth is that the Federal Reserve had been doing what's called quantitative easing, which basically means that they were putting money into the economy and they kept interest rates low to artificially stretch out the business cycle by making it easy to borrow and bolstering asset prices. The Fed can't build a new factory, but it can make rates low and make it easy for you to borrow money and cheap, Faruhar explained. But this period of extended growth was due to come to an end. And then the pandemic hit, which added a huge wild card to the expected slowdown because globally different countries were out of sync in terms of when they were closing down and when they were opening up. And then you had a third wild card, the war in Ukraine, which fueled an energy and food shock. So all of these wild cards together make this a pretty unique moment in history. And then there's the fact that the S&P 500 reported its biggest monthly gains since 2020 last week. Stocks rallied when investors began to believe that the Federal Reserve might not be as aggressive in raising interest rates as they had feared. And exports, too, have expanded, rising at a whopping 18 percent annual rate. So if the labor market and Wall Street are not in crisis, where exactly is the recession? Where has GDP contracted? Remember those struggling American families? It's there. The constricting areas of the economy are in inventory, energy, and housing. Families are pulling back on buying electronics, furniture, food, and gas. Kraft Heinz is bracing for consumers to cut back. Arm and Hammer is seeing more demand for low-cost laundry detergent and cat litter. Store brand goods are gaining market share over brand name items because every little bit helps. McDonald's and Chipotle said that low-income customers are coming in less and buying cheaper menu items. As the Wall Street Journal put it, quote, many consumers who weathered the pandemic with the help of government stimulus and fewer expenses of their own are running out of steam. Some of them now face the return of commuting costs, a need for new work clothes, and steeper childcare expenses. With Americans buying fewer goods, companies have had to cut prices to reduce merchandise. The result is that inventory of food and cars are responsible for the bulk of the slowdown. In addition to gas and private inventories, a housing downturn is gathering steam. We all remember how housing, housing prices surged throughout the pandemic. Between April 2020 and April 2021, the price of the average home increased by 16%, the largest single-year increase since 1992. As people fled cities during lockdown, you started to see these stories about couples desperately bidding $50,000 over asking price to buy a home sight unseen and then losing out to another couple. Those days are over. Home sales have fallen by 20% this year, with a third of the inventory cutting prices due to less demand. Housing is now the least affordable it's been since the 1980s. The average home price is more than six times the median household income, and interest rates for mortgages are now at an obscene 6%. It's led developers to pull the brakes on building new housing, with residential investment falling by 12%. 
This will only increase the radical mismatch between supply and demand at a time when the U.S. is already facing a huge housing shortage. Last year, Freddie Mac estimated the shortage at 3.8 million housing units. This isn't a recession so much as a total assault on the middle class. From car ownership and energy to home ownership to eating out, the hallmarks of a middle class life are being pulled further and further out of reach for millions and millions of Americans. Here's the thing. Inflation is going to come down at some point. Gas prices are going to improve. They already are, however slowly, however little. The one piece of this puzzle that's not going anywhere is the price of a home relative to wages. While blue metro areas tend to have a higher wage floor, that's also where the housing crisis is concentrated. Meanwhile, the mass migration from blue states to red states definitely drove up the housing market in places like Florida and Texas, though not by enough to offset the housing divide. One study found that the average home sale price in 2019 in Democratic-leaning counties was $428,000, compared to nearly half that in Republican counties, where it was $245,000. Zoning laws protecting both the environment and Tony elite neighborhoods have resulted in much less inventory in housing in Democrat-led counties, and as a result, it's led to soaring prices. Middle and working-class New Yorkers and Californians find themselves competing with lawyers and software developers for a limited number of homes and apartments that actually no one feels they can afford. And when the left does talk about housing, these conversations are almost always focused on the dependent poor, finding ways to force middle-class neighborhoods to accept a high-rise for homeless people or giving out more Section 8 housing vouchers. That's when they aren't suggesting that Americans give up on wanting their own homes altogether and urging the government instead to incentivize renting for life, as a recent New York Times podcast did. Why this antipathy for the American dream for their neighbors? Tom Wolfe explored this in his book, Radical Chic, where he argued that elites reproduce their status by doing the painstaking work of distinguishing themselves from the middle class. Every middle and working class person knows that crime, poverty, and drugs are connected and that building a high rise for homeless people will build all of those things into their neighborhood where they're clutching at the American dream. So members in elite standing have to oppose that to establish their elite standing, which is defined by its distance from the bourgeois values of the middle class. It's nimbyism to oppose importing thousands of mentally ill drug addicts into your neighborhood. Where the YIMBY movement I'm not suggesting that these people don't truly have compassion for the poor in their hearts. They obviously do, but their compassion is apparently totally compatible with pulling up the ladder to a middle-class life from their working-class neighbors, the people delivering their Amazon packages and driving them home from the bar in an Uber and stocking the shelves at their local grocery. Which brings me back to the question of a recession. If the left is kicking out the ladder to home ownership, the right's obsession with calling what we're in a recession seems to me a similar kind of conceptual erasure of the middle and working class because many of the problems we're seeing are a long time in the making. What we're seeing is less a recession and more just a radical acceleration of the pressures squeezing the middle class that have long been at play. The housing market puts home ownership out of reach for much of the working class, eviscerating upward social mobility. Wages have stagnated over the course of four decades, even as production has skyrocketed. Eating out now is no longer affordable for the middle class while gas prices are now limiting the mobility of middle-class families in a very literal way. 
much of this is not new and finding a convenient way to pin it all on President Biden, you know, it might feel good, but it's dishonest aside from the price of gas, which of course Biden's green agenda certainly helped drive up. Um, you know, the rest of this, much of what we're seeing in terms of the reversal of upward mobility for the lower classes has been decades in the making. And it seems to me that both sides are really struggling to acknowledge their role in that awful trend and to discuss how we collectively fix it. Hmm. What say you, Robbie? Hmm. Well, I think I mostly agree. And I, I agree with your point that this we can't all pin this on uh, President uh, Biden or anything like that. And, you know, the the increasing uh, not affordable nature of life for the middle class is, uh, yeah, it's a huge problem. Now, it's not a problem that is evenly spread out, right? You still can uh, it's harder than it used to be, but you you can purchase a home. You you can find somewhere to live more affordably. You know, if you look outside blue enclaves, right? If you look in in the in middle America, you look you can yeah. you can find affordable places. Now, this is not this is cold comfort, I think, to a lot of you know prog otherwise progressive young people, right? Who love the the bustle and thrills of your New Yorks and Chicago's and maybe Washington D.C.s or L.A. et cetera. Uh, and those places, yeah, they've become totally unaffordable. And look, I, I agree with you, obviously, that we need, uh, we, we certainly need more housing, uh, more supply of housing could not hurt. And in too many of those places, there are check there are checks. There's too many. There's too much veto power over new development, right? The environmental veto power, the like characteristic of the neighborhood, uh, sort of. Oh no, you know, what if you bulldoze this, you know, ugly mall that's been there all of 20 years? We can't do that. So, uh, so that's a that's a huge that's kind of a it's a blue but just kind of neighborly conservative stuff. Although I don't know, you were you were kind of making fun of the the Yimby people, right? Yeah, because the the Yimby people are always trying to get the dependent poor into middle class hmm. neighborhoods when what they should be doing is the opposite, creating you know a much more robust and expansive uh, you know a set of middle class neighborhoods, making it possible for middle class people to live in their neighborhoods rather than penalizing middle class people who don't want to be importing crime into their neighborhoods, you know, where they have children. Yeah, well, I mean, I agree. Section 8 housing is, uh, I've seen the, living in D.C., I've seen the problems with it. I've, I've been in buildings that, because of the exact kind of thing you're describing, became unlivable for ordinary people because they were all of a sudden unsafe, because you exported, right, the uh, the people who are on the streets in, into the building. And that's, uh, that the kind of homeless and drug addiction and mental illness problem i guess we do talk about it on the show a lot is something right i don't i don't think that housing is necessarily itself the answer to i mean we're talking about you know drug addiction we're talking about not being able to provide people who need psychiatric care and and you know drug cessation care you know, that kind of stuff before we even talk about uh the housing but i i don't know i just i want to build more obviously build more everywhere and we've made it too prohibitively difficult to do anything of the sort in this country and that would would certainly help amen <laughs> Speaker Nancy Pelosi is expected to visit Taiwan as part of her Asia tour, according to a senior Taiwanese government official. According to CNN, the move ignores warnings from the Biden administration officials who are worried about China's response to what would be a very high profile visit. The visit, which would be the first for a U.S. House speaker in 25 years, is not currently on Pelosi's public itinerary. Joining us now to discuss our Hill political reporter, Julian Manchester, and Real Clear Politics White House reporter, Philip Wegman. Welcome to you both. Thank you. Thank you. So, Philip, I, I noticed that uh, she was getting a little bit of, I think, 
applause from some Republicans for saying she was going to do this. Can you talk more about that? It's interesting because just last week you had former House Speaker Newt Gingrich, uh, the last speaker to visit Taiwan, encourage her to go in Washington, D.C. Uh, fast forward a few days and then you've got former uh, President Trump saying, no, she shouldn't go. This is much ado about nothing. I think there's a little bit of a split here that we're going to see on the right. It's going to shine a light on uh, this uh, sort of disagreement in those conservative circles over whether or not the United States should be uh, more aggressive abroad or more isolationist. But I think on the whole, what you're going to see uh, is that Republicans are going to support her. Uh, We've seen a lot of China hawks really emerge. And this is essentially telling China, all right, you know, you can complain all you want. Uh, but our, our people go where they want to, and uh, that includes Speaker Pelosi going to Taiwan. I think this is going to be really interesting, though, because it's going to um, force some of these simmering tensions that were underneath the surface uh, above ground, right? Uh, you're going to have the Biden administration, which for a long time was saying, you know, we support whatever decision she wants to make, but the military says it's a bad idea. I think that they're going to rally to her, and they're really going to support her. Some of the, the previous rhetoric about um, you know, maybe being indecisive, maybe this being a, a bad idea, that's going to fall to the wayside. And I think we're going to have a, a rally around the flag moment uh, as she travels abroad, not just, uh, you know, from Democrats, but Republicans as well. Yeah, Julia, I'm wondering, you know, it, to me, it seemed like at the end of last week, the understanding was she was not going to go because she didn't want to pick a fight with Biden, right? At this moment, right, when the Democrats seem to be sort of rallying around a lot of legislative victories, you know, you seemed like, you know, Democrats in array, right? This this sort of hopeful moment at the end of last week. And now we're hearing that she is actually intending to go again. What happened there? What's your understanding of the dynamics there? Yeah, look, I think it's an awkward dynamic for Pelosi and Biden because we know that President Biden and Speaker Pelosi are both leaders in two very different U.S. branches of government. So her trip is not necessarily dictated by the Biden administration and vice versa. However, China was not making that distinction with President Xi Jinping very much warning President Biden in a phone call last week to not play with fire, seemingly referencing, uh, you know, that visit along with, um, nego- uh, I guess, relations between the two countries that have really hit an all-time low. So it was an awkward situation for her to be put in. But at the same time, I think when we step back, and look at this from a more global perspective, you know, there's a lot of parallels between China and Taiwan, as well as Ukraine and Russia. Obviously, China has not invaded Taiwan like uh, Russia has invaded Ukraine. However, it goes to this narrative of a smaller country uh, living in the shadow of a larger country uh, that is intimidating it and that is going against, uh, you know, Western or U.S. principles. Um, And obviously, the U.S. has been very supportive of Ukraine. And I think there is a push among Republicans and Democrats to very much hold that same policy between China and Taiwan. So, you know, the fact that she's going, I think very much signals that she's not bowing to the Chinese pressure, to these Chinese threats. And um, we know that they've been conducting a lot of military exercises in the area, definitely a signal being put towards the U.S., Taiwan, and the West. Um, however, she's very much sending her own signal by going and really sending a signal from the whole country as well.
Yeah, I think you're right to bring up the comparison to the Ukraine-Russia situation, which is one of, you know, the Democrats' really main policy commitments at this point is, is staying the course on Ukraine, continuing to send money, weapons, et cetera, to help Ukraine fight Russia. That's something uh, that's a path Joe Biden has very deliberately chosen and continues to choose. And to the extent there's any opposition to it in Congress, it's actually from a small number of Republicans who have voted against um, that aid. So, so Philip, you know, going a little further on what you were saying a minute ago, this kind of ideological divide in the conser in conservative circles, uh, you know, certainly the kind of Bush neoconservative uh, era is, is just absolutely over. But there is still then some disagreement um, uh, or some divide, I think, among Republicans on, on what to do, uh, you know, given that I, I think the, um, the more, uh, the, the less interventionist uh, wing of the Republican Party, the one that does not really like what we're doing uh, with Ukraine-Russia is kind of, you know, is, is continuing to gain um, steam you know, what does that say for how they'll kind of treat a Pelosi visit to Taiwan? I'm not sure we're, we're going to find out. I can tell you what they're going to be responding to, though. You've got Republicans in Congress who are looking at the Biden administration that from day one has said that the next generation uh, is going to confront a world that is defined by democracy versus autocracy. That's been Biden's rhetoric since his first press conference. Uh, what we've seen, though, is that when he talks about that showdown, more often than not, he has been, um, you know, casting the United States and Russia as the main actors there. And so much of, of our attention, as Julia rightly points out, has been on uh, the U.S. countering Russian aggression in, in Ukraine. Uh, the issue now, though, is, well, you've got uh, another autocracy uh, that doesn't exactly have uh, the best plans for the United States or our allies in China. And I asked John Kirby this question the other week um, about was the United States perhaps uh, privileging one theater over another? Um, you know, I asked this in light of the president's decision to uh, increase, you know, our presence in the Mediterranean. Uh, and that's just, you know, one example. You know, if, if we send some warships to the Mediterranean, uh, though, that necessarily means there are fewer uh, warships to, to send to, uh, you know, the South China Sea. And so my question was, can we focus on two theaters at once? His answer, despite some concern from, um, you know, military brass and despite some concerns that are being raised by Republicans, uh, was that the United States could do both. Well, now that's not just a, a paper commitment. Now you actually do have to keep uh, Nancy Pelosi safe when she's in the region. Um, you know, we, certainly the, the military is on higher alert there now. Uh, but this is no longer just a theoretical question of counting uh, resources on paper. Um, you've got a, a very real uh, dress rehearsal, perhaps, for something that we hope will never come, which is an open conflict. Uh, but, yeah, the, the Biden administration is going to have to make certain that they can both honor their commitments to Ukraine, uh, secure the, the European theater, and then make sure that they have, uh, you know, uh, enough uh, boots on the aircraft carrier, whatever, you know, new euphemism we're going to be using to describe uh, the future over over in the Pacific as well. Hmm. Uh, you know, Julia, I, I think it's something that was very interesting to me about Trump's approach to China. You know, he was no shrinking violet when it came to China, but his main beef with China was along trade 
issues, right? He started this big trade war with them, imposing all these tariffs. Um, and it's so interesting to me now to see, um, you know, a Democrat like Nancy Pelosi um, taking what was a, a trade concern about China and sort of amping it up into a military conflict, if you will. Do you? I, to me, this seems to reinforce the idea that you know the Republicans are weirdly taking on the, the side of you know being you know pro protectionist economic policy and anti-war, whereas you see this Democrat sort of going out there and and taking this very big military risk. What what say you? Yeah, we've seen a lot of Democrats take a very hawkish stance towards China, whether it's from a military perspective or even when it comes to trade. And I would argue that before Trump, we actually saw a lot of Democrats in Congress, whether it was uh, the senator from Ohio, Sherrod Brown, or Ohio congressman and now Senate candidate Tim Ryan, very much speaking forcefully out about China and you know the Chinese jobs going overseas. We know that this has really hurt the rest of in particular. Um, I think that's why when you had Trump come along in 2015 and 2016, he was talking about that message and he was able to peel those voters away from Democrats like Tim Ryan or Sherrod Brown in a state like Ohio and bring them on board to the Republican side. So, you know, in this midterm election year, it's been fascinating to see a lot of these uh, more these Democrats that are trying to appeal to a blue collar base, whether it's Tim Ryan in Ohio, Mandela Barnes in Wisconsin, and they are taking very hawkish approaches on China when it comes to an economic uh, perspective. So I think Pelosi very much is trying to, um, you know, take that message and, you know, put it in into use for, in leadership and, you know, maybe even in a military perspective. We know that China is obviously trying to um, broaden its influence in the Pacific and um, in that general part of the world. And uh, I think you're going to see Republicans and Democrats very much try at least to unite against that and push back. Mm. Well, Philip and Julia, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. In 2018, radio host Alex Jones and his website InfoWars were banned by YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, and Apple for violating the platform's hate speech policies. Associate editor at Reason, Liz Wolf, writes that these social media platforms are now preventing the promotion of a documentary about Jones called Alex's War as well. And Liz joins us now to weigh in. Liz, good to see you. Thanks for having me. So what is going on with the Alex's War documentary? Um, obviously, we talked about it, I think, on the show a little bit last week, because, where we talked about uh, Gawker at least claiming that Thomas Chatterton Williams was at an event he wasn't even at, which it would have been fine to be at the event because it was a screening. It wasn't like a pro-Alex Jones rally. It was a screening of this documentary about Alex Jones. Um, you know, tell us more about uh, you know, what you're seeing with the promotion of the documentary. Absolutely. I mean, it's been really disheartening. Basically, this director, Alex Lee Moyer, who has in the past uh, created documentaries on incels, which actually received uh, really positive reviews from Sundance and South by Southwest. She's sort of a, a new uh, documentarian, but definitely very promising. She decided after her incel work to uh, turn her, her sights to Alex Jones. And she did a really interesting job. She gained a lot of access to him. I think to some degree the documentary is flawed because uh, it's not quite as critical as I would have hoped. There's a lot of stop the seal stuff that Jones was really involved with and nobody really deeply thoroughly examines his stolen election claims, which are a pretty significant thing uh, that he's sort of 
turning his followers on to. But regardless, that's sort of a, an artistic quibble, a quibble on the merits. Most people don't even get to view the documentary to form their own opinions because they don't even know it exists. Google Ads, Meta, Instagram, a bunch of these big tech platforms are censoring the promotion of it, not allowing the director and her team to pay for promotion. Uh, it's, it's really quite despicable. And, and part of this is part of this because of the platform's rules against Alec Jones specifically. Because he was, you know, famously taken off YouTube, maybe taken off Twitter, uh, probably taken off the Meta properties as well. I, I can't recall if he was explicitly or specifically or not. But he, you know, he was the kind of classic test case of okay, Alex Jones is a bridge too far, right? No, no one else falls into the same category of you know, deliberate conspiracy theorists, whatever stuff as Alex Jones, who not, you know, well before the election stuff, there was all sorts of other stuff. I mean, he's been sued for the claims he made about the Sandy Hook shooting. He was sued by victims of it for suggesting that it, it wasn't what it seemed or it had been planned by the government or whatever. I don't, can't recall ex exactly what his flavor of conspiracy battle was, something that, you know, absolutely vile and not true. And so he was taken off these platforms uh, for, for reasons like that. You know, now we have all sorts of people being taken off these platforms for all sorts of reasons for, I think, probably all three of us would agree, at least in some cases, for things that do not at all, in my view, rise to that level of, uh, of, of, of actually, like, like legal risk for, for saying things that are so so inaccurate, um, is it because of Alex Jones' status with his platforms that you think this documentary is not being allowed the reach it would be otherwise? Well, it's impossible to know. All of these uh, big tech platforms are couching their um, their censorship of this trailer basically in the terms of hate speech and and saying that it. Uh, is you know uses hateful rhetoric and so therefore it, it violates their terms of service. I want to be really clear. You know we're libertarians. We're in favor of private companies exercising their rights and, and deciding their terms of service and what type of what types of environments they want to create. That's perfectly permissible. But the problem is Alex Jones is somebody who has at least like five million followers. I would imagine some number of those people are true, true believers who believe, as Jones did, that 9-11 was a conspiracy or that the Sandy Hook shooting or the Parkland shooting, you know, he, he spread a lot of really horrible conspiracy theories. I would imagine some number of his followers are true believers. I would also imagine some number of his followers are far right or conservative-ish or just government distrusting sort of skeptics in general who, you know, when big tech decides to be super aggressive toward censoring any mention of Jones, they're going to suddenly see him as this martyr. He's going to be this martyred figure, and that lends even more credibility to the things that he's talking about. So I don't think these big tech platforms have really thought about what types of unintended consequences arise when they decide to ban people like Jones, or even promotion of like a tangential uh, documentary. I, it's not, it's, I guess it's not tangential. It's a documentary that very directly deals with Jones. But this is like two degrees removed. This isn't just banning jones from directly accessing these platforms which is something i'm not in favor of this is also banning uh or making it very difficult for a documentary maker to make a, a documentary that is critical of her subject you know it, it's so interesting he really has been sort of unpersoned right from the point of view of like big tech right you cannot mention his name 
you expect to, you know, purchase an ad or something like that. Uh, I, I read this really interesting interview with Alex Lee Moyer um, at Matt Taibbi's Substack, um, where she talked a lot about how um, her initial film was not actually about incels so much as it was about the, the sort of disaffected young parentless men who had been kind of left behind economically, spiritually, socially, who were deeply, deeply isolated. And it was really um, an investigation into, you know, the dark potential sort of um, bubbling up in these communities. I mean, they're not really communities because these people are so atomized, but it, it kept getting called the incel movie. And at some point she said, I just stopped fighting it. I was like, you want to call it the incel movie, call it the incel movie. And, and, and that, that perspective of like, you know, Matt Taibbi asked her, did that kind of annoyance with the mainstream media fuel the choice of your next subject to go for Alex Jones, like the most, you know, out there person? And she was like, 100 percent, you know. So in a way, I guess my question is just trying to steel man this a little bit. You know, it, she she chose her subject from a position of like trolley peak, right, which was totally justified, by the way. I mean, I think the earlier film is very, very important and was obviously like like you said, initially got a lot of positive press and then what you know then the twitter sphere tw turned on it right um you know but so in in that sense you know having chosen a subject that you know one knows has this um you know all of this baggage right and then going into the film i haven't seen it but you know i believe you when you say she doesn't push back on a lot of his claims like steel 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 manning it a little bit like you know um isn't there a little bit of sort of like that wasn't this a little bit of a symbiotic um episode rather than <laughs> Right. Like like the, there's two players here and they're both sort of getting what they want. I mean, sh you know, th this film is now going, like you said, going to have that status of martyrdom because it has been censored in this way. And so I don't know. I respond to that. I'm curious what you think about that. Are you basically implying that to some degree it's it's premeditated or it's expected or it's part of the promotion? I mean, I wouldn't go that far, but definitely yeah. like that there was, um, you know, the, the thing that makes this, that, 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 that there's a certain cachet that gets added to things when they get this sort of treatment, like, I, I mean, in a much, much, much smaller way, you know, my, my book, Bad News, which is right over here, you could see there's a, a police car on fire on the cover. And for two days, Twitter censored the cover. And I definitely got a lot of book orders that day because people yeah. sort of rally around you when they feel that you're being censored by big tech, as they should, because big tech censorship is bad. But <laughs> I, yeah, I, I don't know. What do you Abigail Stryer's book on trans issues, right? I totally agree with that. I mean, we're in this really interesting moment where anybody who participates uh, in the world of politics sort of understands which issues are going to be electric, right? Mm -hmm. We understand which things are going to turn you into a radioactive figure. And to some degree, engaging with Alex Jones is one of those things. I totally agree with that, Batya. I do think my argument, though, is that it's kind of despicable that we're to this point where a, a journalist or a documentarian engaging with Alex Jones in this manner is radioactive. Like, it shouldn't be the case. Yeah. What we should be doing as journalists, uh, as filmmakers, as, as artists, what we should be doing is engaging with these people. Because I'm not sure, it's like what you were talking about with incels, about these, these disaffected young men. To some degree, there's a grain of truth in everything that Alex Lee Moyer is, is talking about and turning her attention to which is that, you know, a whole generation of men becoming increasingly atomized and turning either toward Jordan Peterson in the best of cases or right. uh, much kookier, crazier stuff in the worst of cases, you know, January 6th rioting in the worst of cases. I, that's something that we need to take seriously because it's not going away. 
And by the same token, Alex Jones has clearly has some popularity. He clearly has some pull over his fans. I think it's also worth pointing to the fact that Joe Rogan maintains the most popular podcast uh, in America. And so he has some some greater cachet whenever Spotify's employees call to have him deplatformed. Basically, Spotify's like, well, Joe Rogan's an enormous moneymaker. Of course, we're not doing that. But I think a lot of people fail to understand just how popular these figures are. You know, Joe Rogan is is hopefully deplatform proof because of how amazingly popular he is. But I don't know if Alex Jones is the same. But regardless, it's important to take these people seriously because they they are clearly very compelling and very convincing to a significant portion of the American public. And I'm not sure what we gain when we push those people into the dark, when we make them feel more disaffected, more unheard when we make them feel just more martyred and as if maybe some of the things that Alex Jones is saying about how everybody's out to get him, maybe it's a little true, right? Like what other conclusion could you draw from the fact that big tech platforms are yeah. doing this to yeah. him? Yeah, Bacha, you uh, you remind me of about the 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 con. You know, you want a certain amount of controversy for a, a book or a piece of content you have. You don't want so much controversy that then you literally get shut down. But like I remember when the Andy No, uh, a bookstore that was offering his book, it got protested. And I remember thinking, <laughs> how good for him? He's going to sell a million copies, and of course he did. We should all be so lucky to have our uh, our books protested ineffectively by uh, Antifa. Uh, Liz Wolf, thank you so much for joining me, and and Bach as well. Our next guest is Donald McNeil Jr., who joins us to discuss what you actually need to know about the monkeypox outbreak. He's reported on epidemics for decades and last year won the Pulitzer Prize for Public Service for his COVID reporting in The New York Times. Donald, welcome to the show. Thanks very much. It was actually The Times that won it. My reporting was part of it, but anyway. Well, we celebrate you both. Uh, we wanted to ask you what you make of the government's response to monkeypox so far. The CDC and the FDA, there's been some criticism of how uh, the vaccine rollout, again, the FDA had to inspect a factory. Didn't, that took longer than, than was desired. Uh, and it sounds like, but I'm curious for your take on it, it sounds like we're repeating some of the COVID pandemic mistakes, which, are very, which is very frustrating given we'd just gone through it. You, you would have expected a kind of faster turnaround on some of these things. But what do you make of it? I, I, OK, I, I, I'm trying hard not to compare this to COVID or saying it's similar to it or exactly to AIDS or exactly to every pandemic is different. I mean, look, whether or not the government is having a competent response, an incompetent response or an amazing response depends completely on your perspective on this. I mean, here we are starting an epidemic for which we actually have a vaccine and we actually have a treatment. And that's amazing. And it's because of the foresight of the United States government, which started ordering this vaccine back in the mid 2000s when they were worried about a smallpox attack, basically because of Saddam Hussein and the, and the rumor that he had weaponized smallpox. Um, so at one point we had 28 million doses of this vaccine, but they were in bulk frozen form and they eventually expired. And now, back when I started writing about this, I tried to get an answer as to how many doses do we really have? Because the CDC was saying 1,000 to 2,000. The company was saying, well, we made 28 million. And when I called the strategic national stockpile, they said, we can't tell you because it's a state secret because it's a bioterrorism uh, alternative. Now we're finally getting answers. It looks like there were somewhere between 800,000 and a million doses of this vaccine sitting in uh, frozen form in Denmark, which is being put into 
filled and finished category so that you can actually be used here. I think we've got about 300,000 doses in the country by now. How many do we need? Nobody really knows. I mean, the, the best guess is that if you wanted to try to get all of the gay men who are at risk right now in this country, you would use the, the figure for how many people might need to be on PrEP, pre-exposure prophylaxis for HIV, and that's around three to four million. So we don't have enough vaccine. But the fact that we have a vaccine and the fact that we have a treatment, which is pretty good, Tecovirumab, Tpox, means that we're way, way, way ahead of the curve we're, it, 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 compared to where we've been in all other pandemics. I mean, it took us a year to have a vaccine for COVID, for example, because we had to start from scratch. This one is actually, it's in the freezers. But unfortunately, nobody knew at this moment that monkeypox would suddenly break out of Nigeria, arrive in, in um in, in uh, Europe and then get into a specific high-risk sexual network, which is not just men who have sex with men in general, but men who go to things like the International Leather Conference or the Darklands Festival or, you know, places where there's a great deal of anonymous sex. And that's a, when, it, when a new disease gets into a network like that, you've got a, a wildfire going on. Well, and, and that brings, uh, brings us to my next question. So, so we're trying to understand exactly how at risk a uh, you know, general population would be or if this is going to move out of the community it's currently in, because it's certainly the case that so far, you know, 98% plus of infections are among this uh, group of men who have sex with men or who have attended events like the ones you mentioned. But when, then when I read about, like, the mechanism of transmission, it doesn't sound like it is a strictly sexually transmitted disease that you could acquire it perhaps or you're you know push back on me if, if i'm wrong here you by being around or you know being exposed towards someone or maybe having shared towels or something like that but but so far we have not seen like very much of that at all is there a risk that in the future this is not going to be just in this community you know what what do you think okay the answer is we don't know yet um and and so by general population i assume you mean heterosexual population it's not even I would say that not the entire gay population, gay male population is at risk yet. It's more the guys who are inside the networks that have lots of anonymous sex. Um, and that's not everyone. But this disease transmits sort of the way herpes does through, uh, you know, blister contact as part of sexual contact. Um, so if you look at herpes in the general population, you're looking at 20% of all sexually active people have had it at one time in their lives, and women have a tendency to have it more than men. So we're somewhere, likely to be somewhere between HIV, which is almost entirely in the gay male population in this country, but in fact in the world, 53% of all the people with HIV are women and girls. So we're, you know, yeah could presumably get out of this network. It depends on vaccination speed. It depends on people's behavior. Um, and it depends on how, how what a good job we do of getting the word out and, and whether people are worried. Right, right now, there's panic. I mean, there, there was a poll by the University of, of uh, Pennsylvania that said uh, one out of five Americans is worried about getting monkeypox. And right now, that's absurd. Um, but it's what happens at the beginning of every pandemic. You either there's indifference, and then there's sort of a oh monkeypox, what's that? And uh, oh, it's just, you have to have sex with monkeys, or you know people get <laughs> ridiculous in the beginning, and then then they begin to say oh okay it's in gay men. Well that's fine, I'm safe because you know I'm not at risk for AIDS. And then as soon as they begin to hear well it actually may get out of that network, then they begin to think oh my god you know am I at risk? Is my daughter at college at risk? And the answer is we don't know yet. I mean right now. 
97, 98, 99% of all cases are in uh, men who have sex with men. Um, there have been some nurses infected. There have been some babies infected. There is clearly some transmission. We don't know if it's kissing. We don't know if it's possibly breath from people who have active sores in their mouths at that moment. I mean, we knew that was the case with smallpox. Um, so we're, we're really pretty fuzzy on everything but the fact that this is sexually trans transmitted by the close contact you have during sex, particularly between sores and mucous membranes, which is different from something which is in semen. It's, 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 it's touching, which makes it a little bit like herpes. Donald, in your piece for Common Sense, you are scathing about people who refuse to cancel these big um, sex positive parties, as well as, you know, people who out of a, what I would call kind of woke desire not to offend have been um, hesitant to talk about which population specifically is at risk. And you end your piece by talking about how this could actually fuel a backlash against the gay community in the worst case scenario. Talk to us a little bit about that, because I think that that thing where, you know, a kind of um, censorious um, attempt to protect people's feelings ends up actually harming those people more is something that's quite prevalent in our culture right now. Okay, yes. Um, was I censorious? Sure. Uh, what I was really saying was, look, I'm not saying cancel the parties. I'm saying delay the parties. The summer of pride was not a good time to have a monkeypox epidemic. Um, if, if we could only... if the and it, look, there are producers of these parties, like like the owners of the bathhouses back in the 1980s. They make a lot of money out of these parties. It's 50 bucks at the door. You pay for drinks and stuff. You're basically encouraging men to have sex with each other and, and to dance and to have fun, to hang out um, in return for making a, a profit. If those parties could have been held off until September or October, we could have vaccinated many more men. By that time, we might have a rapid test you could give at the door because right now you have to, you know, you have to swab a pustule and then send it off to the CDC or another testing laboratory. So we don't have a rapid test you can give the door. It might be possible to make parties safe. So I'm arguing, look, just hang on. Nobody's saying you have to give up sex for the rest of your life. Just <laughs> slow down on the parties um, until September or October when people can get vaccinated and then, you know, let the good times roll again. Um, there isn't any discussion of this. It's as if, particularly by the New York City Health Department, seems to have the attitude that, no, 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 we're sex positive, um, and we want to absolutely encourage men to go out and have sex and, and put a Band-Aid over your lesions. That is totally irresponsible advice. I mean, you know, no, that is not protective. It's not protective of the other person. And from my point of view, it's not the responsibility of a health agency to be sex positive in the middle of a sexually transmitted epidemic any more than it's, you, you know, you should be sneeze positive or cough positive during the Spanish flu. Your idea is to be infection negative if you're, if you're a health official, and you kind of have to bite the bullet. Too many health officials, I think, want to be liked. You know, they're, they're doctors, most of them. They were brought up to have a good bedside manner. They, want, they don't really understand their position is more like that of a military general. You know, your job is to save the entire army, not to be the most liked guy in the place. And so if you have to ask some people to fight a suicidal rearguard action in order to save your entire army, you do that sometimes. You have to sometimes be tough and say people need to, you know, control themselves. In this case, nobody's threatening to lock you up in quarantine camps as, as Cuba did. Nobody's threatening to, you know, nobody's marching in and canceling the parties. We're basically, it's a quest, you know, please hold off on the parties 
for a couple of months until they're safe. You know, you don't want men to suffer, and there's a lot of unnecessary suffering going on right now. Well, it's especially uh, kind of hypocritical given, uh, you know, the ease and the duration with which uh, health officials, including in New York, uh, you know, shuttered things during the COVID pandemic, including, you know, the parks, public, outdoor public spaces um, closed for some length of time, even, you know, even well beyond uh, the point at which there was broad uh, public knowledge and, and knowledge among experts that that outside was a, you know, relatively extremely safe uh, environment from the spread of COVID. Oh, wait, wait, you, you're rewriting history a little bit there. They didn't shut the parks in New York City. They, they did in Los Angeles. There was some overreaction. But that was, none of that was an easy decision. There was a real struggle back in February, March of uh, 2020. Do we cancel the St. Patrick's Day parade? Do we cancel Comic-Con? Do we cancel March Madness? Do we cancel all these things? Every one of them had a struggle. So I... I don't think people are that casual about it, but this time I really think they ought to. In fact, I think to the point where you know the city health department might actually go to the producers of parties and say, "Look, cancel your party, and we'll reimburse you for your expenses." I mean, um, it is not unreasonable to pay the costs of of uh, stopping a disease when you're asking somebody to take a big financial hit. I mean, this is sort of a grotesque analogy, but. When we ask farmers to wipe out their entire chicken flock or turkey flock to stop avian flu or something, or if we ask them to kill all their cattle in order to stop something like foot and mouth disease, um, we pay them for that. And I, I don't think that's unreasonable. I think you ought to, you, you know, there is a greater good here. Yeah, um, so I just think people need to make better decisions now. And I mean, what would you say to the kind of counter argument that, you know, these are individual decisions. You know, people understand the risk now that they're taking and adults should make these decisions for themselves and, you know, let the chips fall where they may. Um, people don't always know, understand the risk um, that they're getting into when they get into a sexual relationship with somebody else. I mean, everybody knows men lie. Every woman knows that. Every man who's had sex with men knows that. Um, you know, people don't like to announce the fact that they have lesions. Um, so, no, I don't consider it completely a we're all grown-ups here and uh, we're all on equal footing. Um, you know, if there were tests at the door, um, if, if you were told you are going to be tested or you're going to be inspected at the door, I bet a whole lot of people who were coming to that party might decide not to come to the party <laughs> because they realize I might get caught. Um, so, no, I'm, I... I, I I really don't believe that people are going into this with completely open eyes. Unfortunately, a lot of people, you know, unlike us, don't read the news, don't pay attention. They turn on, you know, music or sports or whatever when they come home. They're not really paying attention. They don't know they're at risk. And I think you have to move to protect people like that. And let me just ask you one more quick question um, about children specifically. There was a case where last week where two children had monkeypox and, you know, in the right wing media sphere, there was a lot of sort of outrage along the lines of, well, it, you know, isn't it safe to assume these children have been sexually molested, right? Because how else would they have gotten that? How should we be thinking about children? God forbid, hopefully no children will get this. But if God forbid any children do end up with this, how should we think about that going forward? Uh, no, I do not think that children, I, I mean, I don't know what happened in those cases, but I think it's not necessarily likely that the, the, the majority of cases in Africa have been of children. They were probably, you know, the, the, the index case in each case was probably bitten by a rodent. Um, we don't mm -hmm. know how this is transmitted, but we do know that like smallpox, you know, the smallpox is transmitted, um, in close contact with breath in, you know, droplets. Um, so it's possible, you know, 
one couple that had a baby was literally just passing through the United States. And there's very little information about that couple at all, whether they came from Nigeria, whether they came from Portugal, you know, whether they came from Antarctica. Um, and, and the other one I gather was an American baby. Perhaps that was a child uh, of someone who got monkeypox and they transmitted to the child. It does not necessarily mean that it was sexually transmitted to the child. Okay. There are other ways of, of, um, of transmitting diseases like this. Well, Donald McNeil, thank you so much for joining us. Thank, thank you for you inviting me. Thank you so much. All right. Nice to have talked to you. Yesterday, CNN's Brian Stelter invited former Enron executive and New York Times columnist Paul Krugman on reliable sources. Here's what he had to say to Americans concerned about a recession. Can we dispense with the recession debate real quick? Are we in a recession and does the term matter? <laughs> uh, no, we aren't and no, it doesn't. I mean, the uh, <laughs> one sentence. That was it. huh? <laughs> yeah, that was it. It's, it's uh, uh, none of the usual criteria that real experts use says that we're in a recession right now. And what does matter? What you know, The state of the economy is what it is. Uh, jobs are abundant, although maybe the job market is weakening. Inflation is high, though maybe inflation is coming down. What does it matter whether you use the R word or not? Uh, yeah, there there are two uh, aspects of that that really bug me, and I know you know we've been talking about this kind of recession definition for a while. And fine, sure, it is just a term. It, it doesn't change. The character of the economy is what the character of the economy is, regardless of what you call it. But he said two things. He said, "Well, real experts, real experts know that." You know, this is it's not even it couldn't even it couldn't be further from a recession if you tried to be not in a recession. And then he said, you know, what what difference does it make in this very kind of dismissive cadence of uh, of, you know, of a regime support supporter, right, of someone who is clearly one of those partisan figures, I, I think there is, who would because Biden is in charge, of course, he's going to describe it that way. I think we all know that if th this exact same economic circumstance was unfolding with a Republican in charge, God forbid Trump, he, he would say, of course experts know all the criteria have been, have been met for a recession. And it's, it's heartless, heartless to deny that we are in the midst of, of, a, of a horrible recession. Am I wrong? I mean, so I argued in my radar that, you know, the argument of definition is tedious and that it's not a recession so much as an assault on the middle class. Nothing makes me doubt myself so much as watching a clip like that where you see those people, you know, sort of on the same side as you. Right. Because mm -hmm. I think what you're getting at, Robbie, is, you know, there's a sort of like um, smug distance from the struggles of everyday Americans inherent and implied in the way that they are presenting the facts that that is the thing that rankles me and makes me think like god am i wrong because i sort of made a similar <laughs> argument to these people but um you know the the thing about you know pushing the the, the the it always comes back to credibility it's impossible not to imagine what you just laid out which is that if this same scenario was unfolding under their political enemy they would be the ones ringing the bell for recession talking about how terrible the economy was. We know that when Trump had this amazing economy going, right, like bottom 25% of wage earners saw a 4.5% increase in 2019, you know, 
lowest historic um, black and Latino unemployment rates. They couldn't bring themselves to even describe the economy like nobody would even cover it. So I totally agree with you. Like there's a real credibility gap, even if I, too, feel that <laughs> the conversation about the word recession a little bit misses the point, which is the struggle for American families. Right. And I take your point that, yes, there are a couple different ways to define the term. Uh, right. I, I read I quoted from Phil Magnus's op-ed in The Wall Street Journal, where he explains, like, yes, this is this is the definition that the NVER has, although previously under conditions uh, that would not have met this definition, it was still explained as a recession. That's happened. You know how we talk about, the, about this, how we frame this. The experts, right, the fact checkers have some power <laughs> to craft that narrative, and you cannot trust them to be objective and dispassionate. People like Paul Krugman are not objective. They, they are spinning a set of facts um, to make it more favorable to the administration. It, it's obvious that the administration was doing that right in, their, in, their, in that statement they put out, but then, it, then that gets backed up by, as I talked about on my radar, by PolitiFact, by, you know, by friendly people in the mainstream media who then disseminate this message that, well, actually, it's not a recession. And, you know, look at all the good stuff going on, right? And what, what does it even matter? Even if, right, it is always more complicated than it seems that, you know, by this definition, maybe not quite by this definition that many people use, certainly. And the pain people are feeling is real regardless. Uh, and they just don't have, that, or they don't come across, or the administration often doesn't feel, see, seem like it, it gets that, especially when some of the language like, well, why, you know, if you had a Tesla, you wouldn't be paying for higher gas prices, that kind of, uh, right. of statements. We've heard from, Dem we've heard Democrats say that. Yeah, yeah, it'd be great. Everybody gets a Tesla. Great. That would be fantastic. People can't afford them. They can't find them even if they could afford them. Um, but of course, the GOP yeah. is uh, actually jumping on this uh, little interview. So not missing an opportunity to lay blame for inflation squarely on the Democrats. Here's what House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy had to say over the weekend. The Democrats have no plan to help Americans who are paying the highest prices in 40 years. They have no plan to stop workers from losing an entire month's salary because of inflation. They have no plan to bring down the high gas prices they are still costing families more than $4 a gallon and hundreds of dollars every single year. They have no plan to rescue and secure our border or reduce crime. Democrats have no plan to help Americans, but their policies only make it worse. Our country cannot continue down this path. The American people cannot continue to bear the brunt of Democrats' failed policies. I guess the Republican plan is just being left to the imagination, or maybe maybe it's after maybe it's after that clip. The Republican plan to blame the Democrats, and and so on and so forth, which is frustrating, right? Because well, what it, neither side has answers or seems to have answers that uh, that are of interest um, uh, to the American people. But I, I agree that the Democratic plan is. Uh, very confusing at times because it's simultaneously we have to be aware of the climate future and hedge against that and take climate seriously and, and you know move off of of, uh, of fossil fuels to renewables that kind of thing at the same time we're be we're begging we're actually like going to Saudi Arabia to beg them for more gasoline like what, what it's it's a totally totally um, you know bipolar uh, energy policy that this administration has in my view. 
Yeah, I mean, to the extent that, you know, four to five percent of the nine point one percent of inflation is related to gas. Obviously, that is squarely at the president's feet. That is squarely in the Democrats arena. You know, I'm sorry, but the transition to renewables is not going to happen in time to help American families, whereas the Keystone XL pipeline might have actually made a difference towards how much we're paying at the pump. Um, I, too, I'm very curious about what the Republican plan is to bring down the cost of, you know, meat and chicken and grain and and, and eggs and milk and <laughs> everything else. Right? I, I, I'm very, I'm eagerly awaiting, you know, uh, Speaker McCarthy's, uh, you know, uh, uh, plan. You know, wh- wh- where is this going? You know, it's very, very um, exciting to, to, to think that, you know, the Republicans might suddenly become the, the party, you know, protecting the American working class, because at least there would be one party speaking to the to the working class, to the middle class. But, you know, it's very hard to imagine that that that, that the inflation that's not related to gas in America, I, I really feel that it's not not quite fair to lay that at the Democrats' feet because it is a global crisis, a global problem, obviously related to the war in Ukraine. And I am excited to hear what you know proposals are afoot, you know, on the other side. Yeah, and then you, you might hear you might hear crickets, right? As you often <laughs> do. Uh, the Republicans don't. They're easing into the role, I guess, of being the party of the working class, as you put it, um, without. They keep saying that, and I guess they're winning working class people more so, I think, on their opposition to um, the sort of cultural wokeness that is so captured uh, the commanding heights of the Democratic Party that is very off-putting to, uh, uh, frankly, to just most people in general, (laughs) to everyone else. So they're winning more working class people, but I'm not sure it's because they're really, the party's really taking on their their issues. You know, what, what is your sense of that? So I I think, you know, we talk about this a lot. If you look at the priorities of working class Americans, of average Americans, middle class Americans, they're worried about the economy, inflation, the price of gas and crime. Um, and the Democrats, if you look at what their platform is and what they're speaking to, it's climate change, the war in Ukraine, LGBTQ rights, you know, um, right. it's just a total miss an abortion, right? It's a total mismatch, right? American families are struggling to feed their children and the Democrats are talking to them about culture war issues. It used to be the reverse, right? But there's been that total reverse so to that extent, I think, you know, when you talk to working class people, you know, Charles Stallworth wrote about this at Newsweek very well, like they are seeing the Republicans speaking to these issues, if only because they're a useful cudgel against President Biden. There are a few very concrete proposals on the table. That I think it's important to point out. I mean, first of all, the CHIPS Act was was totally bipartisan. But um, I think the energy to start competing with China at a manufacturing level was very much a Trump era you know, point of view. I mean, that Trump really took an ax to the neoliberal consensus and said, no, actually, we're going to fight for these jobs and we're going to fight China for them. And so I think that that is very much an energy that you see more on the right than on the left right now. And that's major. I mean, that's a really big deal. Um, I think also there's a lot of... Um, sort of family oriented uh, policies floating around from, you know, Senator Rubio, from uh, Mitt Romney, um, ideas about child tax credits, ways to bolster um, American families at the family level, you know, incentivize and protect those families, especially, you know, Marco Rubio came out very strongly on this front after Roe was overturned saying, you know what? Yeah, that's a good critique. How are we how are we supporting American families if we're insisting you should have this baby? We're going to become the party that's doing that. And you really are actually seeing renewed energy for that. And then, of course, you know, things like schooling, keeping schools open, um, keeping critical race theory out of schools. These are concerns for middle class families as well. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. 
Well, D.C. public schools have expanded the district's COVID vaccine mandate, making it one of the strictest in the entire country. Students 12 years and older must be vaccinated against the virus to attend school this fall. According to the Washington Post, in total, 85% of D.C. students between 12 and 15 years old have been vaccinated against COVID. However, among black children in this age range, that drops to 60%. As author Jennifer Say pointed out on Twitter, this means 40% of D.C.'s black students 12 and up could be barred from attending school this fall. Robbie, <laughs> how, how do they keep making the same disgusting mistakes over and over and over again? It's it just makes you furious to read about this, to learn about this. I mean, how many times do we have to go over these statistics that children in this age range are not at serious risk of a very negative COVID outcome. The deaths among this age cohort are, are a fraction, a invisible fraction of the, of the total, um, unless you have a immuno health compromised condition or, or maybe you are severely obese, barring extreme exceptional circumstances, this age range is not at risk. And thus the vaccine should be as a matter of attending public schools, this vaccine should be optional. It should be for families to decide, I think, uh, for, for families to decide with their doctors, their kids, you know, what works best for them. They're not putting other people at risk because we all know, even though the vaccine, you know, does help if you're in an at-risk category, uh, helps you from having a negative uh, trip to the hospital or death, it is not doing there, it's doing very little to, to stem the spread of COVID. I mean, we've all, we're all going to get to the point where we're all vaccinated. We've all had it multiple times. It's just not, it's not affecting transmission uh, anymore the way it was you know, early on. Maybe you could, you could have made a case for the original strain uh, that it, it was doing something. But by the time Delta and then Omicron rolled around, it's just not, it's, it's, it's really protective for you if you're at risk of hospitalization or death. That's what the vaccine does for you. It's an individual choice. So to, to the fact that they would require it and that look at look at the population, you're going to hurt black kids in D.C. schools who are you know, obviously we all know disproportionately likely to come from poverty or, or homes that have challenges, single parent homes, people who have already fallen behind over two years of the pandemic from remote learning, people who are at risk of getting involved in sketchy situations or violence. And you are this is the literally the worst thing you could do. This is a this is a this is a project to have more crime, uh, worse reading and math achievements. It's just terrible. It's so terrible. I just, I, how dare they do this? How dare they bar up to 40% of black children from school? And where is the outrage? And I totally agree with you. 84% of juvenile offenders are functionally illiterate. 84%. Mm -hmm. You know, there is a direct line between being able to learning how to read on time, you know, in an age appropriate way and being able to stay out of the school to prison pipeline. I mean, those things that that that, that causation is like totally established. It is so appalling. How dare they bar children from mandated reporters of abuse? How dare they bar black children from maybe the only nutritious meals that they're going to get during the day? It is absolutely 
disgusting and they keep making the same mistake over and over and over again. It's like there's nobody looking out for these kids. They have some sort of weird obsession with trying to force parents to do things that they don't think are right. And like, they're not gonna do that, you know? They're not gonna do that. And so all you're doing is penalizing children for not getting a vaccine that like you said, Robbie, should be a totally individual decision. Yeah, and it's so clear if you look at uh, D.C., I'm sure this is true in many other cities, but it's, yeah, I pay particularly close attention to it because I live in D.C. You see that the, the rise in crime, the carjackings or some dog nappings, stabbing, shootings, et cetera, the, the kind of violence that we're seeing uh, happen, it, it, much of it, it is substantially, a good amount of it is being committed by teens who are on the margins of society, who fell into bad behavior, into the wrong crowd, who are delinquents, who have nowhere else to be. If you have structure for them, if you have extracurricular activities, school, support groups, those kinds of things, you keep more of those kids, because it's, it's very, it's not a lot of people. The, the, prob, the number of problem people we have out there is small. But if you keep more of them you know, in the net, you capture them, you have something for them to do, something healthy and social, you prevent them from, you know, falling, from crossing the line where they've fallen into a territory where they're you know, very likely to be out sometime they're not supposed to be or involved in, in you know, very informal crime taking place. You don't have that happen if you have structures for them, school being by far the most important structure you could possibly have. We need to socialize young people, especially if they're at at-risk environments where they're not getting good guidance at home or they don't have people to be good role models for them, school helps keep them, keep them from going off and doing something bad. So to, it's the stupid, it's the easiest thing, it's this, it's a day, it fills a daycare role in, in some, uh, some circumstances, teaches good behavior. And to just close that off to the very, a, a group of people who are disproportionately likely to be, to be at risk if they don't have it. There's, it, you're, it's bad for them. It's bad for the entire city. It's just bad on all fronts. And it is, there is no rational public health purpose for it. We're not, this isn't a trade-off in values. We're not saying, well, this will be bad for their outcomes and will make crime worse, but we're weighing that against the public health need. There is no legitimate public health rationale for this. So what, Robbie, what is your explanation for why they're doing it? Like, I'm really, I'm just speechless. I don't have an, I can't steal, man. I mean, I got nothing. Like, yeah. why would they be doing this? The only ones doing it. Nobody else is falling for this nonsense. Like, what's the why here? As far as I can tell, this city is, I mean, like many other cities, but D.C. in particular is COVID nuts. Um, the 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 officials, the government officials, uh, the I mean, it's, it's teachers unions, as you know, have been a very, uh, very powerful lobby for keeping schools closed as long as possible and having as many requirements for as long as possible, including vaccine requirements. Uh, there was, you know, a lot of fear that, oh, you know, what teachers are older and some of them are in more at risk categories. So you're, you're putting their lives at risk if, you know, you're exposing them to the virus. If kids come in, they're not vaccinated. But again, that thinking you could you could have made that argument a year ago. I, I would have disagreed with that judgment then. But you just can't. That argument has yeah. is, has to come up against the reality that unvaccinated kids are not are not more likely to be disease vectors for you. Your health is your business. And if you're at risk or you're worried, there are so many steps you can do to protect yourself. And it's not really on other people to do that at this point. 
Um, and, and I don't know why that message has not, it, that message has taken hold in a lot of places, but the DC public school system is just so, I mean, so many public school systems in cities are not serving kids well, and, and that was true even before the pandemic, but just the wholesale abdication of the idea that it's even their job to, to do so is, it's really, it's really sad and very frustrating. It's an absolute scandal. Last week, late night host Jon Stewart advocated for the PACT Act on Capitol Hill, which is a bill that would support burn victims and sick veterans. After Republicans blocked the bill's passage, Stewart is holding no punches and is taking aim at Senator Ted Cruz in particular. Let's watch. It's nonsense. There is nothing in the bill that is not related to veteran spending. And don't take my word for it. An asshole on an iPhone. Read it. It's at congress.gov. This is for veterans who suffered health effects from being exposed to burn pits and other toxins. That is it. What the Republicans got made clear uh, is if we leave that spending as discretionary, don't play the budgetary trick, the bill will pass with 80 or 90 votes. I don't know how many other ways to say this, but there was no budgetary trick and it was always mandatory. And when they voted in the Senate on June 16th, they actually got 84 votes. And you know who voted for that? Ted fucking Cruz! And every other one of those Republicans that switched their votes. There was no reason for them to switch the So this is a kind of complicated uh, situation. We've just been reading up uh, more about it to get it. So I. I think, and I understand, uh, you know, John Stewart's um, anger, and he's been a very powerful advocate for um, for people uh, who were injured in 9/11, our service members, uh, people injured in our 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 foreign wars. So I get it. However, I do. It does look to me like, yes, in fact, 400 billion dollars was changed from. Uh, discretionary spending to mandatory spending, which was something that the Republicans said they didn't want. And then, and, and you, you lay this out for us, Bacha. So Senator Toomey did have a measure to take that out, and Dems didn't go for that. So then, yeah, Republicans voted against it. Right. So this all happened right after um, Manchin made his big reversal on uh, the sort of pared down Build Back Better. Right. So a week ago, uh, you know, Senator Manchin was out there saying, I will never vote for this. You know, we can't put this much money into the economy at a time of such high inflation. Uh, you know, he did that because uh, uh, Senator Mitch McConnell had said he was going to tank the chips bill. <laughs> if the Democrats passed their reconciliation bill. So Senator Manchin promised he wasn't going to be on board for the reconciliation bill. Everybody voted on, not everybody, but, you know, two thirds of the Senate voted for the chips bill. And not three hours later, Senator Manchin reversed himself on the Build Back Better reconciliation bill and said, actually, I'm going to be voting for this. And so many speculated that the Republicans then turned on exactly the PAC bill in a fit of peak of revenge, saying we're not going to pass this thing. I, I don't really understand two things. The first is why they couldn't just pass Toomey's amendment. I mean, you know, I don't see what the big deal is there. You know, if it, that, that that's the condition for 
the Republicans. I mean, you know, it's not like Republicans hate uh, veterans, right? I mean, it's not like, you know, I, I believe Ted Cruz that if they pass this, um, you know, that they will get, you know, 80, 90 votes for it. And if they don't, we can take it up then. The second thing I don't understand is like, um, you know, how is John Stewart more angry about this than like any of the Democrats? Like, how did this become, you know, he became sort of the face of this. And I think in a way that um, he, he has this penchant for mixing into into his outrage a kind of like smug superiority to the people who disagree with him uh -huh. and i just have always found it really really grates on me and rubs me the wrong way you know he was sort of the king of you know if you don't agree with me then you're stupid you know you're not just like you don't just have a different opinion you have like an unacceptable opinion you know like a, an opinion worthy of mockery and that that to me is just like the 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 he really was part of the building blocks of of i think where the Democrats, at least in the latest iteration, went wrong and lost their ability to communicate with normal people because normal people don't have these views. Now, on this issue, I, I agree with him. It's really important to take care of our veterans. Really, really important. Obviously, it's like Bill is really important. Um, but at the same time, the way that he represents the things he's passionate about, I always feel like um, it, it's the kind of thing that really turns you off. Like it um, him using this to sort of elevate his celebrity to make himself relevant again after his show sort of tanked. I don't know, like there's something about that whole scene that really rubs me the wrong way. What about you? Well, it's as if he's writing the headlines for all the media uh, articles about mm -hmm. this issue. So from Vox yeah, says, yeah. Senate Republicans burned a bill that would have helped veterans. Uh, Washington Post is Senate Republicans block bill to help veterans exposed to burn pits. The Senate passed an uh, NPR is the Senate passed a bill to help sick veterans. Then 25 Republicans reversed course, you know, buried way, 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 way down there is the well, you know, the Republicans say they did it because they didn't want this spending labeled uh, for the label change from discretionary to mandatory. They offered a version of the bill that didn't have that. Democrats voted it down. So I couldn't, you could probably have the same headline that every, you know, everyone in Washington agreed, virtually everyone agreed to support this bill. Then Democrats did something, but instead the, the framing for all of this, the outrage is entirely at, at Republicans for what they did, even though this is, seems like a mutual failure. And maybe there was some malice involved, right? It could be, as you said, it's possible revenge. I mean, this, you know, we're both in, both sides in, engaging in revenge here, right? There was the there was the double dealing on uh, on uh, the reconciliation. So you know, it's all I guess it's all politics. But the framing of it is all those evil Republicans. They're you know, it's, it's as if they pushing the veterans into the burn pits themselves. Um, which right, is and that, that nexus of like John Stewart, Vox, the Washington Post, and the Democrats, right? Like that's sort of the stuff we keep coming back to over and, and now big tech, right? It's like that, you know. The, I don't want to say cabal that's too conspiratorial, but like the interests of those groups are all aligned. The kind of like you know outraged celebrity, right, dominating news headlines in exactly the most flattering possible way that actually totally absolves the Democrats of any responsibilities, and then gets pushed out on social media as like you know I bet you if anybody puts something out like disputing that, oh fact check false, right? Like um, you know as we started the show with. So I, I think that that round robin is deeply alienating to America and goes a long way towards explaining why, you know, trust in um, the media is so low. Yeah, it really does. It's just, it's one-sided. They're on the team. The media itself mm -hmm. is on one of the teams. So they're not 
trusted as referees for these kinds of things because they because they're not really they're not referees they're I thought this Washington Post headline I clicked on it I was assuming this was like the Jennifer Rubin version of it but it's the news story <laughs> so that it's hard to when it's hard to distinguish the two doesn't that tell you everything you need to know no 100% all right well Bacha it's been a pleasure having you with us thanks so much it's been so great being here with you Robbie thanks for having me uh, we loved having you. Uh, tomorrow, Brianna Joy Gray will be back. And before we go, we did want to take a quick moment just to address Kim Iverson's uh, absence from the show. Unfortunately, we will no longer be working together, but we've enjoyed having her on the show last year, and we wish her nothing but the best, truly, in all her future, future endeavors uh, on her own independent channel. For us, be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any content. And for those of you listening while on the go, we're now available anywhere you listen to podcasts. And we'll see you back here tomorrow with the rest of the Rising roster. 